0: Okie dokie, a podcast for those addicted to the study of Scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel!
1: Here I am. (laughs) What are we going to talk about today? Hey, we're continuing the Gospels. We are picking up steam on this train that is the Gospel Journey. Uh, We just left off last time um where Mary and Elizabeth had met and had the whole magnificat and Mary had just left about uh with Elizabeth about to give birth um uh, and right. now the story's about to pick up again okay good
0: yeah this is this is good stuff this so is. get your uh, I'm ready. just going to take off yeah I'm just going to take off at verse 57 you ready let's do it all right 57 now the time came for elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son now uh, that sentence of course in and of itself has nothing to do with what i'm about to talk about but i feel like i need to at least lay down a little bit of uh info that's going to be important here it's probably going to be important later so Whether you know it or not, at some point, John the Baptist is going to be associated with Elijah. Uh, He's not literally Elijah, but he is, you know, in the spirit of Elijah, and we've talked about that some already. So here, one of the interesting things is that traditional arguments are uh, around John being born at Passover time. And if John's connection with Elijah is real, well, that only adds to those arguments or strengthens those arguments. So Elijah was long expected to return at Passover. And we can even see this in some of the uh, uh, festivals. Samuel, you have been involved in a Passover Seder at some time or other, right? Yes, this past year. And do you remember what, that there was always an empty seat at the table? Do you remember what that was about? That was, they were awaiting Elijah
1: to come, and you would actually go open the door at one point in the cedar and
0: go check to see if he's there and call out to him, that kind of thing. Right, right. They include Elijah in every household that's doing a Seder. And, and do you remember what Elijah was supposed to do? We're supposed to herald the coming of the Messiah. Exactly. Yeah. And so now we know that there's a similar relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus, right? So the time has come for Elizabeth to give birth. She bore a son. Verse 58, her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. Now, (laughs) they're just now hearing about this. (laughs) Remember how surprised we were when she kept it quiet for five months? Yeah. <laughs> and then six months, and then Mary stays with... She's kept it quiet the whole time. She must
1: have done oh, a really good job concealing it. Like, how old is she? Like, is she like 80 or 90? Wouldn't it be weird for a <laughs> 80 or 90-year-old
0: pregnant woman? <laughs> I don't know what she was doing. But somehow, she was keeping this thing pretty darn quiet. Now, only, only now do... Uh, well... At least some or most of her neighbors and relatives even know that she's been pregnant. And then, you know, just sort of a, as a reminder, right, this, this is a great mercy that has been shown to her by the Lord, right? He has fulfilled her heart's desire. And in her words, he has taken away her reproach. And not only did she just have a child, but she had a son. And, I mean, I know we've talked about this is culturally super important, carrying on the name, mm-hmm. taking away a reproach. And, of course, this is exactly what the angel had predicted. And now we actually get a little insight into, you know, this is pretty much everyday Jewish behavior. This is what we're going to see with John the Baptist is not much different than what would, we would see with Jesus, depending on how they tell his story. So verse 59 says, And on the eighth day... They came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. So, this whole thing about circumcision, this this is a tradition, Jewish tradition goes back centuries and centuries and centuries, and it was always done on the eighth day. Now, what we don't usually think about, though, is what exactly this means. I mean, we get the part about, oh, yeah, sign of the covenant, you know, circumcised people, yeah, blah, blah. I get it, I get it. But think about what was actually being stated or, or done or inaugurated at this point. John the Baptist, this little baby, eight days old, he was officially, legally entering into the ongoing Sinai covenant with God. Now, do you think about that when you think about him getting circumcised? Not usually, no. No. But it's a really big deal. Yeah. Really big deal. He was entering into that covenant. And guess what? Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. Mm -hmm. We're going to see about that. Officially, legally entering into the ongoing Sinai covenant. Pretty important. So hold that in your back pocket. It's important to have. Now, there's another one. This is, this is kind of cool, but it, we don't know that this is actually applicable to John the Baptist or Jesus, okay? So normal Jewish tradition, uh, the baby is placed in a chair that is designated for Elijah. They call it the throne of Elijah, okay? This, this is for circumcision. Now, now we don't know if that tradition actually reaches all the way back to, you know, John the Baptist, Jesus. We don't know, for sure. But if we could just take a moment to imagine, just think about it. We're looking back, this idea of placing the one who came in the spirit of Elijah, okay, placing him on the throne of Elijah while entering into a covenant with God. It's layers upon layers. Is that not a cool picture? I I just love that. So again, we don't really know that that's what was going on here, but just the thought of that picture just uh, just makes me smile. So uh, by the way, naming the child is also to be done on the eighth day. Now, when do we normally name kids in America today? Before they come out of the womb. Yeah, you know, uh, I found out I was pregnant. I'm eight weeks along, and uh, I picked out the name. Yep. <laughs> or I've had my name picked out since I was a little girl, yeah. and now that I'm married, and go, I'm going <laughs> to name it right. They name the child on the eighth day. It's Jewish tradition. Now, it's not to say that they didn't have ideas and talk about it before. Sure, but they receive their name on the eighth day. And to go back and just sort of remember what they said. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. Again, this is totally tradition, would have been super common to pass on the father's name. And of course, from the text, you can see that that's what everybody's expecting. However, remember we had an angel speak, and he had a different plan. Mm -hmm. So we get down to verse 60, and we have this. But his mother, that would be Elizabeth, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, "Uh, None of your relatives is even called by that name. And they made signs to his father, that would be Zechariah, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he, Zechariah, asked for the writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered, So Elizabeth jumps in and she clarifies, hey, his name is to be John. And of course, we know, just as the angel had said, right? But this makes the people confused because not only is that not his father's name, they don't even know anybody, any relative that's named John. It doesn't make any sense at all. And so, being confused by the mother, and this being a patriarchal society, and in line with, you know, their time and culture and all that kind of stuff, they just turn around to the father, Zechariah, for the final ruling on what this child's name is to be. But I don't know if you noticed this. In verse 62, they said, they made signs to him. It's kind of weird. Yeah, because earlier... We know that he was mute. He Mm -hmm. wasn't going to be able to speak. Why would you need to make signs
1: if, you know, he was just sitting around the circle listening to everybody?
0: Right. If he could hear you, why would you make signs to him? And so that's why I mentioned that earlier on in our study. And that's why along the way I've been referring to him as being deaf and mute. Because here we actually see. You don't make signs to people who can hear. So he was probably deaf. So anyway, uh, Zechariah, he understands their signs, for whatever that's worth, and he settles it. He, he writes it down. Your name, the name is to be John. And the people were marveling at this. It didn't make any sense at all to them. But of course, again, what do we know? The angel. Yeah, big bad boy Gabriel. <laughs> that's right. He had spoken, and so they went with it, Right. But then something cool happens. Zechariah writes down on a tablet, his name is John, verse 64, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. Now, interestingly, they didn't say his ears were opened. Uh. So this whole thing, it's, it's confusing, right? We just don't really know. Was he mute? Was he deaf and mute? I eh, don't know, but I'm going with deaf and mute just because. But Zechariah can speak again. We know that much. And what's the first thing out of his mouth, Samuel? Blessing, praising. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He is praising God. He's glorifying God, lifting up God, however you want to say it. He is blessing God. And this is all, it's all happening just as the angel had said. And it almost has this tone of
1: like, God slash the angel gave uh, Zechariah another opportunity. He's like, here you go. You're stepping up to the plate again. Like, I know you didn't believe before and you said you needed proof. Let's see how you respond. And, you know, it's almost like he grew. He repented. He learned his lesson. And then he was rewarded with, you know, getting his speech back.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And think about it. What was he unable to do after the angel struck him with the inability to speak? He wasn't able to give the
1: priestly blessing after doing the incense offering over the priest at the temple.
0: Yeah. And what's the first thing he does when his mouth is open? Gives the blessing. He gives a blessing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's yeah. <laughs> like I've been waiting right? nine months
1: to do this. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah. So now here's an interesting thing. So He asks for the tablet, he writes their name, his name is John, and all of a sudden he can speak again. Verse 65, and fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So you got to know, I mean, in in some sense, Zechariah's story was certainly well known among all the family, the friends and the neighbors, the part about him being mute. So when he just in a moment, he goes from not speaking back to speaking. They know, they recognize, man, this is the hand of God. It's, It's working right there in their midst and well, they're kind of afraid. I mean, God is awesome and loving and just and, and all of these good things that we can say, but they understand that it is healthy to have a fear of the Lord, and when they see him moving in this very real way, right in their midst, well, they're scared. It's almost
1: like a lighter version of what the people of Israel did whenever God met them on the mountain at Sinai with the, you know, the fire and the lightning and the thunder. They got they're like, oh gosh, send someone up else up there because we're gonna die.
0: Yeah, yeah, you go talk to him for us because we're scared. They are rightly awestruck by all these things that have happened. Right, they, 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 it's it's uh, it's a big deal to them, and they begin to spread this story throughout the region. And so everybody, they they were hearing this story and they recognized that this, this baby boy was special. Somehow he's being separated by God for God's purposes, but they don't exactly know what for. And you gotta imagine the stories, the speculation, all of this stuff, they had to follow him, you know, his whole life. So, it's just, it's, it's cool. Now, we already know that John was supposed to be filled with the Spirit, even in the womb. And then we know that Mary shows up, and all of a sudden, Elizabeth is what? She's filled with the Spirit as well. Yeah. And now, verse 67, And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying. Okay, we'll get to that in a sec. We now see the entire family filled with the Holy Spirit at least at, at some points whatever and so zechariah is about to begin another one of those oracles we keep talking about five of, number 5 of 7 and we this has a name remember uh, mary's was called the magnificat this is called the benedictus and again very much like mary's there are all kinds of references that this connects with back in the old testament more f- more than we can really talk about or whatever, but we might throw them in the show notes. Um, and I would I would also add this, though, maybe, maybe a little cautionary point. It's probably going to be easier to make the connections between all of these references and the Magnificat than the ones that we're seeing here for Zechariah. I don't know why that is. Maybe that's just me and other people see it easier or whatever. I don't know. But... Nonetheless, if you start looking at them and you feel a little underwhelmed, uh, don't be too surprised, Uh, but they are fairly common references, and so, you know, don't blame us, you know, this is what people believe to be the case. But anyway, let's see what he says. Let's go to verse 68, and it says, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. So immediately, the first thing out of his mouth, it's, it's messianic or, or eschatological. This, it's not about his baby, as at least I would have expected. It's big. Praise of God for his faithfulness to his promises. And, and, and pointing out that God has visited mankind yet again to redeem his people again. Again but this time, permanently. And as a reminder, he's talking about Mary's baby at this point, not even his own. And
1: that kind of fits with uh, when you said visits mankind again. This is happening after, is it the 400-year silent period that you know scholars say from the end of the minor prophets to the start of the time of the New Testament writings when, you know, it seems like there you know there wasn't as much dynamically happening with God speaking to individuals.
0: Yeah. Well, that story is definitely very popular. This idea of a silent time. Now, it's true in between the last book that's included in our Old Testament and the books of the New Testament, there's definitely a big span of time like that. But historically um it wasn't silent there was a lot going on so um hopefully we just tore down one of those little false ideas that bugs people all the all their lives yeah hmm? yeah but yeah that's uh i mean your point is good but um just know that it really wasn't all that silent right in the in between mm-hmm. yeah so six uh, verse 69 uh the God of Israel has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Now, just a little helpful hint, to raise up a horn is to make a show of power. So God is making a show of power, power leading to salvation. And just a side note, you could maybe go look at 1 Samuel two, ten. Or Psalm 132.17, we talked about the Davidic covenant a little bit earlier. Uh, Was that this episode or the previous episode? That was the previous episode. Previous episode. Yeah, all of those things, they're all kind of in play here, but people can go look at those on their own. Uh, Verse 70, and he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. So now Zechariah, he's making the point, hey, this isn't some new and unexpected thing. This is what the prophets have been speaking of all along. It's the promised kingdom where God's reign is uncontested. No foe can come against it. It's the, it's the fulfillment of everything that was spoken to the fathers. That would be like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God has remembered. And, and it's, okay, it's not as if he forgot and then it just popped into his head. God has remembered, meaning he's, he's acted faithfully. Acted faithfully to fulfill his part of the covenant. It's
1: like a much more magnified version of you telling someone, "Hey, I'll go grab that at the store for you later," you know, to as an act of kindness, generosity, whatever, and you actually follow through with it rather rather than it being some flippant thing. It's like an act of following through on something that you agreed that you say that you're going to do.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, God remembering his covenant or remembering a person remembering to act it has nothing to do with forgetting. It's faithfulness. So yeah, exactly right. But then, you know, we also got to ask, God is acting faithfully to a covenant, but which one? Because there are a bunch, Yeah. right? So verse 73 continues, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So which covenant? Oh well, he's going back to Abraham. And this is like the granddaddy covenant of them all. It's it's the one covenant that all of the other covenants depend upon and are actually built. Upon Right. We often try to look back and see these covenants as if they're individual things. uh, They stand alone. We might even imagine that one covenant replaces another covenant, things of that nature. But that's not what you see when you really get in and see what's happening in in the scriptures and when the covenants are made and what they mean and how they're viewed in the following parts of scripture and 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 Jewish writings outside the Bible and all this stuff, the covenants, they, they meld together and they work together and there's no replacing. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, additive mm-hmm. maybe instead of, uh, replacing. So. Could you say it's almost like, um,
1: when a married couple after so much time in their relationship go somewhere to quote unquote, renew their vows, their, They're saying the same purpose that they did when they got together, and it's not replacing the vows that they made on their wedding day. You know, it's a promise that they're adding to their original agreement, you know, to come together when they first got married to continue that relationship as
0: time goes on. Yes, and going with that idea, because that's an awesome, awesome picture. If you renew your vows, pick a number, 20, 25, 30 years, something, 50 years, whatever you do. How much better do these people know each other? I would hope a lot. (laughs) Yeah. And so the promises, the the covenant that they're making with one another, is it not more appropriate, more, uh, I don't know, practical something? I mean, isn't this new covenant better than the older one?
1: Yeah, and not better in that we're downplaying the old one better in that that time has made it more rich. Yes,
0: exactly. And so that very image is exactly what we're talking about with all these covenants. You know, we often talk about the new covenant, and we're not going to talk about this now, but I'm just going to give you a little hint, plant a little seed. (laughs) The new covenant isn't replacing any one or more of the old covenants. It's building upon it. It depends upon the older ones, okay? So it's, it's a great, great picture. Mm-hmm. So so in this, though, we see that the end result of all this is this great moving of God. and 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 somehow, free from trouble, and you could look at that in terms of people and nations, you could look at that in terms of sin, whatever, but free from trouble, we might serve him unreservedly completely right we his people now of course at this very moment that we're reading these scriptures we're only talking about israel but we also know that gentiles are a part of this ultimately right we know that we his people we will be righteous and holy before him always and that will be the common state of the things in the messianic era Uh, and in fact If we want to get specific, we could say that's the common state in the Messianic era, but it's the only state of things in the world to come. But, and this is the beauty, we get a taste of it now through our submission to his will, walking in holiness and righteousness now. Mm. So it's a beautiful picture. But, I don't think I'm not sure what Zechariah knew what he was saying here. I'm we're we're throwing a bunch of stuff in. So uh we're talking about the covenant, the oath to Abraham will be delivered, serve him without fear and and it you know that important part. We are in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the most high. For you will go before the Lord To prepare his ways. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Okay. Now, Zechariah just switched context on us. Probably got whiplash, right? He he switches. He's now speaking about his newborn son. And he declares him to be a prophet of God. Declares... uh, He's going to precede the Messiah. He's going to prepare the way. And he's going to teach people that they might understand and grab hold of this salvation that's being worked out literally in their midst and in their time, and hopefully attain that forgiveness. Now, this is important too. When In Israel, when we talk about forgiveness, the general idea is that you're being atoned, you're being covered, you're being uh, cleansed. In your physical person, your body, you are being forgiven so that you can enter into the presence. But this forgiveness that we're talking about with the Messiah, it's important for us to, to recognize the difference. This is a cleansing, cleansing not of the body, but of the conscience. This is thorough, complete, and permanent and that's what has finally come, right? This knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of their sins. But you, you might even have that question, how, How is it that we have this forgiveness? And so verse 78, "Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sun, or the sunrise, shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so uh, this is the end of the Benedictus and and sort of the the summary, if you will, the, the end is that the whole story can be summarized, wrapped up in God's mercy. He knows that his creation is in darkness and he has given or provided light. And of course, just it should happen to you all the time. What is the light remind you of Samuel? What's the first thing you think story. of? Genesis yeah, 1. exactly. Yeah. He's given us light in creation and now light through his Messiah. And why has he given us this light? Well, in the text, it says to guide our feet into the way of peace. And and this is important. Peace doesn't just mean the absence of trouble. Peace uh there's there is the idea of, you know, absence of trouble, but there's also prosperity and success and wealth uh health, friendliness, deliverance, even salvation. All of this is wrapped up in peace or shalom. It's it's another way of saying that we must, or should, or could obey his will instead of our own, and the outcome of that is all good. But we need to guide our feet into the way of peace. Mm -hmm. I hope some people
1: are having some callbacks too to our John chapter 1 lesson. Um, In the first chapter, let's see, verse 9, when it says, there was the true light. Which, yes. coming into the world, enlightens every man. That sure sounds similar to verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness. That's yeah, uh, so, so much connectedness going on right now.
0: Yeah, good call. Yeah, and that's, I mean, hopefully, we're going to keep trying to point it all out, because it's good to hear it as much as you can, and we may think of things that other people don't, but man... For sure, as you're listening to us do it, you too, you, when you read your Bible, you should, over time, begin to recognize these kind of connections, and and it just, ah, it enriches the story so Mm -hmm. much. It's awesome. Well, one final verse, verse 80, and boy, you want to talk about summary. Listen to this. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Boom! 30 years. (laughs) Woo, fast forward button. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, now we have, uh, I think, possibly, an allusion back to Isaiah chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. We're talking about, you know, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. And, and uh, we might even, not only do we see John in the wilderness, we know about that, but you, you could also possibly look at that as the entire nation of Israel being in the wilderness, right? But one final thing, and again, I, I don't know, I think this stuff is just a little bit silly, but people talk about it, so I'm going to address it. Uh, John wasn't raised as a beast or by the beasts in the wilderness, okay? That's not what we're trying to communicate here at all. He was raised in the strength of the Spirit, and he went into the wilderness at a time of his choosing, or possibly, you know, directed by the Spirit, whatever. But he went into the wilderness on purpose until his time had come. So some people try to paint this picture where John is just some, you know, wild animal of a man or whatever. Okay, stop. Yeah. He's a normal guy, but his place was in the wilderness and calling people out. Mm -hmm. Uh, We find salvation and covering and just so much of our relationship with God, we find that in the wilderness. It's not to say he's not there in the good times, but so often, so much easier to to see and recognize and notice in the bad times the Mm -hmm. wilderness yeah and i don't want to give too much away
1: in teachings that we're going to do down the road but bringing up this aspect of uh criticizing or painting this incorrect picture of john as a beast in the wilderness a lot of it is just a matter of role like uh, i know that you and i have learned stuff about when the you know, the crowds and the Pharisees were, they were like simultaneously criticizing both John the Baptist and Jesus. They were saying, well, John the Baptist is like depriving himself, you know, and fasting all the time uh, as a prophet. And then you got Jesus over here. He's, you know, feasting and doing all of these things that we (laughs) thought were prohibited on the Sabbath. And it's not as if one is right and one is wrong. It's just the role that they were in was different. John yes. was a prophet that came to, you know, empty himself to prepare the way. You know, that's yes. that's what his mission was. And Jesus, he came to, you know, experience the fullness of human life, and that includes, yes. you know, feasting and celebrating with his disciples and the people he interacted with. And if you're having callbacks to Ecclesiastes where there's a time and a place for everything, you can yeah. say that for yourself too. There's a time to be like John the Baptist, and there's a time to be like Jesus too. So, I just wanted to bring that up. That you know, nobody's in the wrong with how
0: they live their lives. It's just you know they're called to do different things, right? Yeah, and that's such a great point because people sometimes they put pressure on themselves. I need to be you know fill in the blank. The only thing you need to be is what God's called you to be, and then. And another way, they look at other people and they put expectations on them. You need to be fill in the blank. It's like, hey, you know, would you let God do what God's doing in a person? Let a person be themselves. Now, that doesn't mean let them sin or, you know, whatever, but how they go about their life, there's a unique calling and let people have it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. Well, now here's the thing. We're uh, a little bit short, at least for our episodes thus far, and so this actually works out really good for me, because the next thing that we were going to try to address, Samuel, is the genealogies. Mm -hmm. We'll be in Matthew uh, chapter 1, 1 to 17, and then Luke 3, 23 to 38, and uh, I think that we can make fairly quick work of those. And I'd like to do that, so let's just keep on going, shall we? Sure. So here's what I'm going to do. I I just gave you the references, and I'm not even going to bother reading them, except for maybe a a few choice selections here we'll get to as we go, because honestly, me reading them is not going to make them any more interesting or fun or anything, Mm -hmm. right? You can read those. They're the genealogies, but we are going to talk about them because they're a little bit of a trouble spot. So let's begin. We're going to move over now to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and he writes this. "Is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So let's just take a moment to see what it is that Matthew's trying to say. He wants to relate the, the history of this person, Jesus. He wants us to note that he is the Christ or the Messiah, Same same word there. He wants us to know that he's a direct descendant of David, and this is important because that makes him eligible to be the rightful king over Judah and Israel. And one final thing, he he, he wants us to know that he's a direct descendant of Abraham, and therefore he's an inherent part of the promises God has made to all of mankind through Abraham or uh, Israel, ultimately. So, and now, now... Matthew's writing this, what's actually been going on? This is kind of like what you talked about. It's been five centuries since we've had a Davidic king on the throne, right? Ever since the Babylonian exile. So providing some sort of proof that this is, is David, I mean, it's, you know, it's an important part of the story. He he's, needs to include it, but both inside and outside the Bible, we got some pretty good agreement on this. Jesus is a descendant of David. Uh, for example, the apostle Paul. In his greeting in Romans uh, chapter 1, in verse 3, he mentions Jesus and he says that he, who was descended from David according to the flesh. So he agrees. If we go outside the Bible, uh, like a, I guess we would call this an historical writing, Eusebius, he writes of, of, of a persecution that happens later to some of the family that, that is sort of like uh, down the line from where Jesus was. Obviously, they weren't directly descended from Jesus, but from his his immediate family. But he talks about their persecution, persecution, and, and they are known to be of the family of David. Okay, so that's a thing. And believe it or not, we could even go to some Jewish writings outside the Bible, like their Talmud, etc. They explicitly connect Jesus, this person Jesus, with the family of David. So. Uh, Matthew writes it. There's writings elsewhere. It seems like it's a imp- pretty important thing. But now that I've said all that, it sounded like a good beginning, right? Hey, these genealogies are going to be great. But when we start to compare the genealogies between Matthew and Luke, it's bad news. They don't match. Oh, no. And okay, on one hand, they aren't too bad when you're trying to compare them between Abraham and David. I mean, there's a couple discrepancies, whatever. They aren't too bad. But oh my goodness, after that, things just go completely haywire, off the rails. In fact, they don't even continue this this genealogy, the ancestry, they don't even have the same son of David. I mean, it's as far apart as you could possibly imagine, okay? And I just have to say it, Samuel, this is a difficulty. Yes, it is. That's something deeper going on. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, you know, uh, spoiler alert, I'm not sure I can fix it, but we're going to try. So, so uh, one of the things that we need to know uh, uh, in history, we, uh, we know that genealogical records within Israel, and especially Judah, were destroyed by Herod. This seems like a a pretty, you can count on this piece of information, okay? And this seems to have been part of Herod's plan because he wanted to be known as the king of the Jews, right? He wanted that title, so he wants to make that more legitimate. And for us, though, it adds to the confusion. And and so uh, now that we're talking about confusion, let's just bring up a few things here, okay? Did you notice—well, of course, we didn't read it out loud, but whatever. You've read it before— did you notice that Matthew includes women? Seems um, odd for that day and age with
1: genealogies. Not, we're, we're not downplaying the, qual- the quality and the value of women. We're just saying that day and age. That sure didn't seem like it happened very
0: often. Right. It just wasn't a thing. It's not what they did. So why did he do it? And there are a number of theories uh but honestly, to me, they all kind of fall apart pretty quickly um there's there's one line of thinking that that is pretty good it's not too bad, and it's that uh well, I think the reason is because it's it's more general uh less specific than any others, but it basically says, look, each of the women that are mentioned they're involved in or accused of some sort of scandal, right? And, and importantly, according to these same traditions, all of these same women are ultimately considered to be of great stature. And so the theory goes that Matthew included them to show how Mary's virgin birth, which you know had the potential to be scandalous and all that kind of thing on the surface, It actually is placing her in good company. So true or false, I don't know. Take that for whatever it's worth, but there's more. What else we got? Well, Matthew includes this guy named Jeconiah, and it depends on your translation. You know, the the name may not match exactly. But what's important about this is that God pronounced that no descendant of Jeconiah, would sit on David's throne. Oh, why'd Matthew include him? Well, here's the thing. You won't find this explicitly in your Bible, but you can use a couple of places to kind of help piece this together. But tradition around this story has it that Jeconiah repented. And I mean, he really repented so that God's response was to relent from the very thing that he had pronounced. And this is really important in the the big story, right? As as it relates to the power of of repentance, Jeconiah's grandson is Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel is prophesied to be the line of Messiah. So somehow, Jeconiah is out and then he's back in. And the tradition is that repentance is the thing that makes this possible. Now, you can read about this. We're not going to do it here. You can go to Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 24 through 30. This is where you see Jeconiah getting on the outs. And then you can go to Haggai uh, 2.23, and you'll see the thing about Zerubbabel coming back in. And so that's how you can kind of piece this thing together. And if you'll notice, one of the real obvious connecting points is the signet ring. But again, I'm going to leave you to that. But... There's more. Dang. (laughs) So Matthew includes Joseph. But uh, wasn't Mary supposed to be a virgin? (laughs) That doesn't make sense. In fact, yeah, in fact, both Matthew and Luke include Joseph. And so maybe, maybe we're supposed to be considering this from, from like a, I don't know, a legal or a cultural perspective. I mean, it was through Joseph that he received his family name. It was Joseph that raised him, right? All of that. And then another thing that we might say is that even though Matthew is including women in his genealogy, he's not including them in place of men, but simply alongside the men. And so, including Joseph and even though he didn't explicitly mention Mary, but maybe including Joseph, you know, was just part of the whole cultural imperative, right? The way that you do things. I don't know, but wait, <laughs> there's more. So let's get down to verse 17. We're still in Matthew now, Matthew 1, 17. He says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon Uh, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. What do you think Matthew wanted us to pick up on in that verse, Samuel? 14. Yeah, something about the number 14. Okay, but here's the thing. If you really look at what Matthew has written and you go back to just, you know, some of the historical books in the Old Testament, um... Matthew seems to be leaving some people out, kind of, kind of picking and choosing the ones that fit his uh, whatever his purposes are. So it's almost like Matthew is more interested in making that number fourteen work than in actually being accurate with the genealogy. Except there's there's a problem with that too. If you are paying attention while you're reading, and you maybe like me, you go, hey. It said there were 14. I'm going to go count them. <laughs> well, when you do, you're going to be sadly disappointed. Because if you, if you take the names, you get 14, and then 14, and then, uh oh, 13. What? what the heck is up with that? I mean, Matthew this, this doesn't is just like. Yeah, it's like this giant disaster right in the middle of our Bibles, right? And we haven't even started talking about Luke yet. But. There is one thing in here, the way that Matthew writes it, the text kind of seems to suggest that we might need to count Jeconiah twice to get the 14, which is super weird because who's the guy that got kicked out of the whole thing by God? Jeconiah. Jeconiah. And now it almost kind of seems like Matthew wants to count him twice. I don't know. Is that arbitrary or not? What's going on? And besides, what does the number 14 even mean? What's that about? Yeah, I've only heard like
1: 6 and 7 and 40 for an 8 right. for numerical emphasis,
0: but never 14. Yeah, okay. Well, have you ever heard of the, the gematria? I have. Okay. Do you want to explain it or shall I? You would probably do a much better job. <laughs> okay, in simple terms... It's just the idea of taking words, names, whatever. The letters have numerical values. And so you build these mathematical values off of words or names. So, for example, the word David, it's three letters, the D and the V and the D. And you, you give those numerical values and they turn out to be, drumroll please. Fourteen. Fourteen. That's right. And so, okay, well, that's, that's one thing that makes david important but what else? Well, there's this midrash. Uh stories that 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 Jews have told all across the centuries that that help us to understand things better. And it relates something about Israel's history according to the lunar cycle. So the lunar cycle just to kind of kind of get the idea, um it begins on day 1 and of course at that point we are looking at a new moon. So It seems dark, but it's because a moon is is coming into being, okay? You get around the 15th day, and that's when you have your full moon. So everything's bright and shiny, if there are no clouds. And then you have the end of the cycle, which is day 30, which is the very, very end of this moon, which also seems dark. And then, of course, it repeats. You go to the very next day, which is day one. It's still dark in your new moon. So if we were to look at this, we could say, all right, so Abraham. In, in Matthew's accounting here, Abraham represents a new beginning, a beginning in darkness, right? You go back to that story, the Tower of Babel, Abraham being called, all of that. He begins in darkness. Well, let's call that our day one. Well, 14 generations later, we get David. Uh-huh. Another 14 and David reference, mm-hmm. right? And so then you have Solomon. And Solomon represents the full moon. That would be, you know, Israel and all her splendor. That's your day 15. And then, interestingly, Jeconiah represents the end of that cycle, the day 30. And remember, he was uh, uh, cursed by God or, or, or left out by God or whatever you want to call it, right? And then you remember how we said, it's weird. It's like Matthew wants us to count Jeconiah twice. Well, Jeconiah also represents a new beginning, a new moon, a new day one Hmm. because of his repentance, right? And if you do it that way, then 14 generations later, we get Jesus, Hmm. just like we got David. And so the next thing that we should have is Israel in her splendor. But of course, we know as the story goes, they didn't really accept Jesus, and we didn't really get the kingdom at that time and all of that. But but at least you can look at this and go, huh, so maybe there is something interesting about the number 14, and maybe this is what Matthew is wanting us to see. It was a, it was a well-known story in the Midrash, and so maybe he was using that to an advantage. We don't really know, but this is our first and and best chance at looking for some sort of hope in these genealogies, hoping that, hey, maybe there's something here that makes sense, but we're not done yet. I, real quick, I thought you, I was
1: just waiting for you to talk about some connection with um, the end of the lunar cycle where, you know, there's, there is darkness, but then there's, you know, the, the crescent moon. And I thought that you were going to say something like, you know, the, the, If you're going to connect it to Jeconiah, you know, his story seems super dark, but if it's at the end of the lunar cycle and there's that sliver of light, a sliver of hope, you know, then that starts that new cycle that ends in his repentance and the start of a new beginning again. So I don't know. I don't know if there's anything to that, but if you're, if you're playing all that on that imagery, you know, you go from all darkness to all light and then, you know, darkness again with a sliver of light
0: left. Oh yeah, and think of—I mean—that's such a good point. Think of the hope that that can give to any and every person. That when God disciplines, in that even there is hope. Mm -hmm. All right, that's that's a cool picture. I wonder if there's
1: any um, connections to to uh, Jesus's death somehow. I don't I don't know this, but being at the end of the lunar cycle, you know, with The resurrection, like, you know, his death seemed to be darkness, but, you know, sliver of light, sliver of hope that results in resurrection and a new beginning.
0: Well, if nobody's thought of it before, (laughs) you just did. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I like that. I like it. So where are we going next? Well, uh, okay. So, I mean, we can't forget that Luke also has a genealogy. And that, you know, there's these big discrepancies. So, let's do this. So, Luke, when he decides to relate the genealogy, it actually occurs right after Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, okay? And then he, he mentions this interesting thing, Luke 3.23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Haley. So he mentions this thing about Jesus being 30 years old when he begins his ministry. So there's a couple of things, and and I don't know how strongly we should take these connections, but they're really interesting. Number one, if you went back and read Numbers chapter four, I think you would be shocked at the number of times they mentioned the age 30. It's very, very interesting. They had the, I, I don't even remember their names, like the... Cuth, Kohathites or something, whatever, doesn't matter. They're back in there. But the number 30, it's brought up so many times. Is there something about what's being talked about in that chapter and those going into service at age 30? Is there some connection with Jesus and his ministry? I don't know. But even more, there are connections with some real, you know, sort of like the heroes of the Bible kind of things, Right. I don't know if you'll know this off the top of your head, Samuel, but I bet you can guess. When was it that Joseph entered into his service of Pharaoh? Going to go out on a limb and say if he was, let's see, 30? Yep, yeah, that's right. Dang. 30 years old. You can read about it in Genesis 41, 46. And what's important is that Joseph is, you know, his character, his person stands as a foreshadowing of the Messiah. And then there's more. If you look at David, what year of his life did David begin his reign as king? I feel like you're pulling my leg. That's crazy. Is that 32? Age 30. That's right. Second Samuel chapter 5, verse 4. And again, David, he too is a foreshadow of the Messiah, right? So it's, it, this is just, it's just awesome stuff. But... I mean, those are cool things, but it's not getting rid of any of our questions. So Luke also mentions that Jesus is a son of Joseph, but he adds this interesting phrase, as was supposed, <laughs> right? <clears throat> Seems kind of saucy. Yeah, but, but what, he's, what he's actually conveying is that he was the son of Joseph, and that was what was commonly thought. That's what was commonly considered. So he's actually not sort of, you know, uh, winking a nod. He's actually uh, saying this was the common thinking, that Jesus was, in fact, the son of Joseph. And this is really interesting because it raises the possibility that Mary's situation, this whole, this whole idea of the virgin birth and all this stuff, well, it may have actually been quieter, uh, less scandalous than we sometimes imagine. Now, we don't know, but it's just interesting that Luke chooses
1: these words, Mm -hmm. right? It also, it might be uh, signaling to some people about um, individual's role in being a parent to a child, whereas, you know, they may not be their actual biological child, but that doesn't mean that they can't fill that role uh, as needed and to the best of their ability. And in this case, Joseph did that for, you know, Jesus while he wasn't his biological father he stepped into that role and i mean and if if we're treating him as a human then we could say that his personality
0: was molded by joseph exactly yeah and honestly in jewish culture uh, especially in the time that we're talking about uh the biological father didn't mean a whole heck of a lot if there was another man who actually took the child in and raised him hmm the one who raised him and gave him his name, that was his true father. So, That's cool. yeah, I think I think you're totally on. But, okay, but all this does is point out more problems because <laughs> Luke now says that Joseph was the son of Haley as opposed to Matthew who says he's the son of Jacob. So, I mean, the mess just continues, right? So, so, Luke, and oh my gosh, here's another one. Luke traces the lineage through David's son Nathan, Matthew traces it through David's son Solomon. Well, how the heck do you reconcile that? I mean, this is this is hard. Yeah, First Chronicles twenty two ten explicitly says that the eternal throne of David will come through Solomon. But then all you gotta do is sneak over to Zechariah chapter twelve verses ten through twelve. And this is now talking about the house of David, mourning over Messiah as an only son. And then it specifically singles out the family of Nathan. Now, it's not explicitly saying that Messiah will come from Nathan, but what the heck? Why, if it's going to go back and single out a son, why would it pick Nathan over Solomon? What is that? Mm -mm. Things are getting worse, not better. And that, yeah, honestly, there are more problems than these, but we don't have to, we don't have to keep going. The question is, what do we do with this? What do we do when we're looking at our Bible and we're thinking, well, I mean, you know, it's supposed to be the inspired word of God, all this kind of stuff. These seems like pretty big hurdles to have to get over, right? So what do you do? Here's a, uh, maybe we should, we should look at these genealogies and go, well, you know what? Here's the thing one of them belongs to mary and the other belongs to joseph well i mean if it were true that might help but we, we don't know mm-hmm. or maybe we could use um maybe some theories about well maybe maybe there was a death and a remarriage and an adoption or you know things of that nature right uh which which Okay, it doesn't exactly have to be this, but it reminds us of, what about the Leverate marriage? That's the one where, um, let's say that uh, my brother had married someone and then he had no kids, but he died. And so I had to marry his wife so that he could have kids through me type thing. You know what I'm saying? The Leverate marriage. Well, maybe we try to get that in there somewhere. Well, okay. Who's to say that any of those things might actually have some value. I, I don't know. But, I mean, we could never prove it. We don't know. Let me tell you, the first thing that we need to do is quit reading these genealogies with our modern, Western style of thinking. Black and white. Yeah, yeah. We imagined that these genealogies, well, I mean they were given us to us because they're fact. They're designed to capture this detailed and accurate historical information for the reader. No they're not. That's not what people were doing at all. We have placed that burden and that expectation on the scripture, but it's not it's not supposed to be there. The writer certainly never felt that burden, right? So if we step back a little bit, here are some things that we can do that maybe help us help us in this situation that we're in, okay? We can step back and see that Matthew's purpose seems to be primarily to connect Jesus and his role in his, Israel's history with David. But if you look at what Luke's doing— His purpose seems to be different. He seems to want to show us that Jesus' father was, in some sense, God himself, just as Adam's father was God. So Matthew's trying to connect to David. Luke is trying to connect to Adam. Matthew, he's trying to place Jesus in Israel's history. Luke seems to have a much bigger picture. He's trying to place him in like all of mankind's history. And then we can also see that Matthew, for the most part, seems to be trying to to, to build his genealogy from what's already contained in the existing scriptures. But Luke, his is so much different and covers so much ground. Okay, we can only speculate, but... It seems as though he's using the genealogies that have been preserved in the minds, the stories, the retelling of all of the remaining family in Nazareth. And remember the very beginning of Luke, we were reading, and what did he want to do? He wanted to present an ordered account, Mm -hmm. right? A, A good, solid, verified account And so maybe, maybe that's some of what's going on here. Luke's trying to relate what he's getting from these people and Matthew's just going back to the scriptures and building it from there. Yeah. Either way, here's the thing. It would be a mistake if we were to too quickly dismiss these discrepancies, okay? We don't want to do that, but it would also be a mistake to sort of hang the fate of of your entire faith on them. See, in and of themselves, these genealogies, they don't make or break the overarching story. These expectations, expectations of this kind, like on the literal accuracy, they're just inappropriate for this culture, for this time, for these writers, for the way that they um used the genealogies to convey ideas or information right it just we need to be able to hold these things in tension and be okay with it recognizing that we just don't know enough to pronounce anything as right or wrong or good or bad or whatever they're just different we need to be okay with that
1: you, you've you've said so many good things um and maybe just to give listeners uh, just some more things to think about in a different way since, you know, our minds are different the way we think are different. Um, One of the things you just recently said, as much as Jewish culture and Jewish families pride, you know, continuing the legacy of their forefathers, you know, even just within, you know, one nuclear family, you know, a grandfather, is being the legacy of him is being carried on by you know the son and the grandson. It it doesn't make sense for you know genealogies in the biblical text to be treated so flippantly because they they care so much more yeah. about treating uh, you know those that paved the way before them with respect and dignity. Um, yeah, they so do. I wanted to say that, and then also, um, I guess we should like what you said. We should stop treating the genealogies the way that we as Westerners do as a completely utilitarian purpose. I mean, we Westerners write a genealogy to say, you know, this is who started it and this is how we got to the present time. I mean, Jewish thinkers are visionaries. I'm not saying that Western people aren't as well, but, you know, if people are trying to paint a picture, you, you know, you can find it in poetry, you can find it in, you know, fiction and fantasy, but the fact that Jewish people can can paint a picture within a, a genealogy, and that Jewish readers like look forward every year in the you know the Torah reading to to read through the genealogies to find those nuggets and those treasures. Like, I, right. I hope that it takes some pressure off of people to be like, you know, they're they are painting a picture. They're they're not trying to to make life harder for us.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. And so for uh, our listeners. Okay, you need to decide if this really is a problem or not. Like, as for me, though it does present somewhat of a, a bother, there's a tension or an irritant of some sort there. Okay, but ultimately, in the big picture, I guess, Samuel, I have to end with this <laughs> there is no difficulty here. Yes, we need some applause. <laughs> right. Oh man, we have, I think we've kind of gone a little long. It's good because now the genealogies are out of the way, yeah. but we probably ought to find a way to wrap this up. Yeah, it might, uh, might be good for listeners to
1: listen to this episode again, maybe take some notes and then, you know, read through both of those genealogies with some of the things that, you know, especially Paul has said in hopes that you can see those contextual points. I think that would be really helpful. So, yeah. So let's get out of here so they can do that. Okie dokie. Oh. Thank you for listening to the Okie dokie most podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. You can also visit us at okie dokie for more information, or you can listen online. Until next time, we hope and pray that you'll do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.